All right, well, this summer, uh, I'm very excited because I get to take my family to what I believe is the best place on planet Earth. We are going to Estes Park, Colorado. Woo! How many of y'all been to Colorado? Have y'all been to Estes Park, Colorado? Oh, it is a beautiful, it is a little slice of heaven right there. It, it's this little town nestled in the mountains with, with literally 360 degrees of mountains all around you. It is just gorgeous. And, and one of my favorite spots in Estes Park, Colorado is at this YMCA camp. And, I, and what I like to do is I just, I'll just go and sit on the grass. Like some of you guys are sitting over here. I'll just sit on the grass, but it's not Texas grass with all the thorns and thistles. It is heaven's grass. And I'll just brush my fingers across the blades. And I could do that for hours getting sunburned. <laughs> just like this, breathing God's air. <laughs> Sitting in, in the, the perfect weather and just going, this, this is it. This is a picture of heaven. Now, now, maybe for you, the mountains aren't your thing. Maybe for you, it's more of like the beach. Some of you guys love being at the beach or in the waters. Uh, some of you guys may feel like that same feeling of God's goodness when you're floating in the middle of the ocean where you can just see water everywhere in every direction. So you see thousands of miles. You don't see anything but water. And then you look down, and you're, and you're so far out in the ocean, it's just thousands of miles of water below you. And you just think, this is wild. <laughs> and you just, maybe you feel the, the waves of some huge monster, <laughs> like a blue whale, just joyfully swimming beneath you. And you're like, wow, God is good. This is, this is, this is what Job is talking about when he talks about how big God's hands are, that he measures the waters in the cup of his hands. And you're like, man, God is good. You see his goodness in creation. Now, some of you guys may not be outdoorsy people, and you think, I don't like to be outdoors. I'm allergic to everything. Well, there is Netflix documentaries for you, like Planet Earth and things like this, that the cinematography captures it pretty well and goes in places we will never go. And you can just see God's goodness in creation. I mean, some of these, these things compel us to consider what we just read in, in Psalm 8, verse 3, that when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? Like, who, who are we that you are mindful of us, that you would care for us? Well, today, in, in the middle of our series on Genesis, we're going through the book of Genesis uh, a series titled, In the Beginning, um, God has finished his creating acts. And, and, and we just want to hit the pause button and, and look and zoom in on God's creation and, and ask the question, can Christians be environmentalists? Feels risque to ask that. Can Christians be environmentalists. And, and what I want to put before you today is a biblical theology uh, of creation care. A, a, a biblical theology kind of just spanning a bunch of different texts, and, and some might term this an ecology theology. I thought that was pretty creative, you know, <laughs> just me, cool. Uh, now, before we get into it, 
instantaneously, before we even jump into this, and Jonathan brought a little bit of this up here, um, our minds are just wrought with some objections that feel like that just happens naturally. Like, are Christians even allowed to talk about this? I mean, doesn't it feel like environmentalism is like off limits for Christians? There's like this, there's, there's a brilliant professor named Dr. Dr. Sandra Richter, who has done extensive research in the area uh, of ecology and, and, and theology and has, has some great books out there. Um, but she distills these objections into three camps. Uh, first, the reason is it feels like Christians can't talk about this is because of what you might expect, how tribal and, and political this, this whole thing has become. Because if, if you care about the environment, then that means that you also care about X, Y, and Z. Like, it, it feels like a package deal to so many people. Uh, loving the environment means we're getting political. And, and, and partly that's true in, in the sense that it, it, if I were to just take one of these pieces of papers, tear it up, and just throw it on the ground... How many of you would just look at me for the rest of the sermon? I thought about actually doing it. But how many of you would, would just look at me for the rest of the sermon and just be like, that guy is terrible. He shouldn't even be allowed on the stage. <laughs> like, we look at someone littering and we're like, you're the worst. <laughs> we naturally know that. And yet, <laughs> driving down highways, we see so much litter everywhere. And so it's one thing to say, yes, we're all on the same page, but we realize we're not. And so in a sense, we want to make some policies or some laws to get everyone on the same page when it comes to caring for the environment. So where this gets insane, though, is, is that caring for the environment means that you worship the environment. As Jonathan said, tree hugger. It, it lumps you into those people, whatever those people are. Climate change becomes this buzzword, uh, and, and this, it just becomes like this partisan issue when, when this isn't a partisan issue. Like, this isn't the Green New Deal we're talking about. We're talking about a very, very old Green Deal that God makes with, with mankind, right? And so it, this is something that tr should transcend party politics and borders. But the second reason that I think that it's hard for Christians to talk about environmentalism and, and leading the change in these, these conversations is that most of us are, as she says, are just sheltered from the effects of the destruction, of the abuse, of the ex of exploited nature. And so, I mean, think back, if you will, to how an Israelite who was raised from birth um, to care for their animals. As they're raised, they're caring for their animals as they're being raised. Their lamb was being cared for by birth. It, they probably named it. They fed it daily. They, they made it to grow big and in, 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 graze on, on, their, on their land, and, and one day, in the middle of the year, they were told to sacrifice, make a sacrifice to the Lord, and they were required to offer their animal to the Lord and to kill it. I mean, most, how many of you guys, let's kill the family pet. Ooh, like, that changes, that changes things. I mean, Think about this. Like most, most time the meat that was offered for sacrifice was then returned to the worshiper, and, it, and, and they were, as they were brought on this pilgrimage, they, they would have the extended family there to then have a feast and eat their lamb. 
How would that change your relationship with meat? How would that change how you then prayed and said grace at the kitchen table? Lord, thank you for this food. Amen. Is that how you would do it? You've watched this animal grow up. You've cared for it. And it gave its life for you to eat right now. Now, contrast that with going through the drive-thru of In-N-Out. What do you want? I like a number one, light on the onions. Like, we don't even have to say the name of the animal. We just say a number. Number eight, no pickles. <laughs> we just distance ourselves so much from what the animals are that it feels almost impersonal. Now, you know I've talked to you about my love for barbecue, right? So I'm not arguing against this. I think God told Peter that not to call these things unclean, but the fact is that we in, in this generation eat more meat more cheaply than any other generation in the history of the world. In 1990, the typical American slaughter plant operated at 50 kills an hour. 12 years later, in 2002, they were running at three to 400 kills an hour. How do you kill 400, 800 pound bovines in one hour? With tractors, with machines. We are sheltered from the effects of some of these things. We're sheltered from deforestation. Uh, we, don't, we don't have to smell the fumes, that, the rancid fumes that come from the trash that all, we just send away. Out of sight, out of mind. The third reason I think Christians have a hard time talking about environmentalism, uh, Dr. Rick, Richter gives, is that, is that, and this is the one I think is probably the one that I, I hear the most in my circles, is why should Christians care for the environment if it's all just going to burn up anyways. Let's, let's call this man pre-mill Paul. Have you met pre-mill Paul? Paul believes that when Christ comes back, he, he, the world is just going to get worse and worse and worse, and finally God says, that's enough, burn it. And that's the view of what our world, that it's just going to get worse and worse and worse, and who cares what happens to this world? It's just going to get destroyed anyways, and we'll get a brand new one. It's like the rental car. You just run it till it's dead, and you're like, I got insurance. I'm good. Right? That's kind of how it feels. Instead, our own, what the, the argument would be then, our only focus should be the gospel and the conversions of souls. Because if this world is going to die, let's just focus on the people who are going to heaven and preach the gospel to them. In fact, one pastor in 2016 said, what is left at the end of all things? Did Jesus die for plants? No. Did Jesus die for animals? No. Jesus died for people. And when it's all said and done, the only thing that will be left is the church. <clears throat> I hope there is a, something bubbling up in you after hearing something as bad as that theology. On so many levels, it's bad. Somehow or another, this, this holy good and orthodox emphasis on conversions and preaching the gospel, which we would say amen to, has become the only task of the Christian. And therefore, any other task, such as environmental stewardship, is now a distraction from the gospel. 
And really what this is, is a new form of what's called Gnosticism. And what is Gnosticism? It's that emphasis that matter is anything that we don't care. Like anything that, anything that we, we care about is anything that, that is spiritual. It's, it, it's something that we, we want to care about God, people's soul and their spirit. But matter doesn't matter is really the, the way of saying that there. And we'll come back to this objection. But really, it's a care about the spirit of the souls, not the bodies. But I want us all to see that this is the landscape. These are the objections that are, are naturally before us and the hurdles that we had before us. And so let's lay out a biblical theology of creation care. And I want to do so in three ways. We're going to look at from Eden to exile to exaltation. Eden to exile to exaltation. If we look at the scriptures, one area that the church is just sorely lacking is this theology of place. Every realtor knows this to be true. Location, location, location. Our place is important. Said another way, our land is important. It has always been important. And what we're going to see is that God creates, uh, creates the world and he cares about his land and the creatures in it from the garden to the promised land to the return to the promised land. And, and as we look at the Garden of Eden, what, what does God tell Adam and Eve? Let's go back to Genesis 1. I know we studied a few weeks ago. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, the Imago Dei, and let them have dominion over, and then list off all of the animals. And then later in verse 28, God says, fill the earth and subdue it. And he reiterates, and have dominion over everything. And so God is telling humankind, yes, You've been created with a, a unique, special position. And some have assumed that this position, this privileged position, means creation is here to serve us. Let's suck out all the resources from this land, and, and, and they interpret dominion as domination. But what we don't realize is that the land isn't ours. Creation isn't ours. We're merely stewards of the land. We're like you college students who have been given a dorm room, and at the end of the semester, we have to return it and say, this is what I did with it. I hope I don't get nicked for all of, the, all of these things. We've, something has been entrusted into our care, and how have we cared for it? You've been given the imago Dei, the intrinsic, you know, the intrinsic image of God upon you, and, and what goes with that is reflecting the image of God to care for his creation. Genesis 2 now reemphasizes this, giving them the garden. And 2.15 says, it says, tasking them to work it and to keep it. And so, yes, humankind is in this unique special position with God. But everywhere in the Bible, godliness isn't using your position to, to get others to serve you. It's for you to serve others, even the creation. And next week, we'll read about Adam and Eve and their fall from bliss, and their sin, and how as a result of their sin, what happens? They are cast out of the land, the promised land that they were in. And this is, this is monumental. We'll get to it next week, but this is monumental because this, this then now tells us the whole story of Scripture here, that J.R. Tolkien would say that we all, since that point, are now longing for Eden, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Since Adam and Eve sinned, we're all longing for our true home. 
Later in Genesis, the sin of the world got so bad, and now it got so bad that God didn't have anywhere else to cast them out of before he cast them out of the garden. But when now when the sin is all over the world, where Genesis says that all anything was in their hearts was only evil continually, God has nowhere else to cast them out of, he floods the whole world. He sends a worldwide flood to start over. And But here's the, here's the wild thing, and I don't know if you've caught this before, in Genesis 9, we, we think of the rainbow, and we think that's a beautiful image of God's love for mankind. But th- what does Genesis 9, 11 tell us? In verse 11, it, God says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I have made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Here it comes, verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Did you catch that? Like, this was something that was afresh to me this week, that God makes a covenant with the earth. Does that sound odd to you? Like normally when God covenants with humanity, he does it to, to, in order to save them. I have made a covenant or, or a, an unbreakable vow. That to, I've made a deal, a contract, and here is how I will interact with you. And this is a gracious act that will be your salvation. But God covenanting, making an unbreakable vow with the earth? Like what type of contract is God making with the earth? that I will save the earth from humanity's sin. I mean, I will save the earth from humanity. I will protect my creation from the steward of my creation. And though they get as bad as they're going to be, I will never send a worldwide flood because I care for every living creature. Oh, I mean, what love God has for his creation. He says, I'm, I'm going to do everything to protect it. And so we, we left Eden. We, we, we went worldwide, but now let's go into exile. Now, now, now we're jumping over hundreds of years of history here, um, but eventually God would select Israel as his chosen people, as his nation, uh, and, and after freeing them from the bondage of slavery, getting out of Egypt before going into the promised land, the land of milk and honey, God sets down this covenant stipulation with his people, this, this unbreakable vow with his people here. Uh, and this covenant stipulations are like the fine print on those uh, Apple contracts that you just agree to, right? Like this, here's what you have to do to have this relationship. If the nation will keep Yahweh's commandments, the Ten Commandments, God will give them that promised land, that land of milk and honey, but Deuteronomy 4.40 tells us, and it summarizes this agreement with, with, with these words, keep his decrees and commands, which I'm giving you today, so that it may go well with you and your children after you, that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. I mean, do we see how critical land is to God's promises? God ties his people's well-being to the land. The land is like the carrot And when Israel transgressed the laws of God over and over and over again, when they rebelled and bowed down to other gods, finally God gave them over. And he gave them over the hands of their enemies and sent them 
into exile. They are exiled out of the promised land and sent into exile. And now God, I mean, he has a heightened view of his creation. What, what was it that they, they couldn't do? What was it that they couldn't do that God sent them out of, into exile? Not just worshiping God, but look at God's heightened care of the land that, that is part of those stipulations in Exodus 23. We see God, God's care for the Imago Dei, his people, but also even more. We read in, in verse 10, You shall sow your land for six years and gather its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow so that the needy of your people may eat. This, this practice of fallowing, as we heard a little bit before, is, is allowing a, a plowed land a, and tilled field to remain unseeded during its growing season. So you're not, you're not harvesting these crops. And not only does this ancient practice uh, aid the recovery of the soil, but then we get these gleaning laws, which command the Israelites to leave a portion of their field unharvested so that the marginalized can walk through their field and pick their food. Now, is this descriptive for all nations everywhere? Um, I don't think we can apply the same farming laws to this nation, to every nation, but I do think you can take some principles out of it. I do think we can learn something about the heart of God in these principles. In Israel's fallow law, we find a critical principle to guide our approach to stewardship. It, it is not okay for us to take everything we can from the land. It is clear. God says, don't do it. Don't take everything you can from the land. Only take what is needed. And just as radical as that idea sounds today, it was radical then. It made Israel different then. Why would anyone be willing to sacrifice short-term profits to let your land replenish and recover for a whole year? To not farm all of your land and to let the most vulnerable walk through your fields, pick from your hard work, and let them eat your produce, eat your profit away? Why? The answer is offered in Leviticus and in just a short, direct way. And it says, because I'm Yahweh, says our Lord. And the land is mine. Oh, man. <laughs> like that, that is just countercultural. That is countercultural then. It's countercultural now. We are choosing to not be as profitable as we can. That's radical. The idea of the Sabbath is radical. Remember the Sabbath. I mean, that, that was wild then, too. Why would you take a day off of work? Don't you know what you could be doing? How much money you could be earning? That's a day wasted, says the modern world. And so one thing Israel was constantly reminded of in all of these laws, all these practices, is that nothing is really ours. Nothing is really ours. Our money, our time, our bodies, this earth, nothing is actually ours. But God takes the Sabbath and he blows it up even more. You think the law is already too hard to accomplish? <laughs> Wait a second. Look at Deuteronomy 5.14. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. We already talked about that a few weeks ago about the Sabbath. But he goes on. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock. 
The Ten Commandments tell us humanity is commanded to allow its animals to rest. Did you ever think about giving your animals a Sabbath? Like, the animals get a Sabbath. And do our current practices in agriculture allow animals to Sabbath? Deuteronomy 25.4 says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is threshing the grain. Not a problem for many of us today. We go, cool. (laughs) I will never muzzle the ox. Wonderful. But in that day, the ox, he he heaved this giant wooden sledge with a stone that would sever the grain from the stalks. And, And the best way to maximize your profits is to muzzle the ox so it can't eat the grain as it is now plowing the field for you because you don't want him to eat all up of your product. It's more efficient to muzzle the animal. And by not muzzling him, that ox will now eat into 3 to 5% of your profit. And you know, we want market efficiency. You want the best production and best value. And God says, no, share it. Share your profit with your animals. I mean, (laughs) this is wild. (laughs) Like, it, it is not yours anyways, God is trying to tell us. The animal is mine. Care for my animal. And today we have, we have animals in cages so tight that they can barely stand in it, right? Like, they have no room to sit or to go to the bathroom. I mean, let's take chickens. Everyone seems to love chickens. But most of our chickens today are given no more space to live their whole lives in than a, than a square a piece of paper. Like, it's, it's no bigger than a piece of paper in this metal cage where they, they aren't able, to, able, able to, to nest. They aren't able to perch. They're not able to bathe. They're not able to peck. They are not even able to spread their wings. Like, that's what a bird should be able to spread its wings. They are immersed in their own feces. They're given steroids to be bigger, to produce more meat. And many are so top-heavy that they can't even stand. Not only should these realities just frighten us, they should shame us as well. Like, this is what we're eating? This is what we're feeding our kids? Now, are we being very two animal rights activists? Proverbs 12.10 says, the righteous care for the needs of their animals. Or are we simply applying God's commands, even if it's inconvenient? It's not just the land. It's not just the animals. God tells Israel when they're besieging a foreign enemy, he tells Israel, while you're at war, in Deuteronomy 20, 19, when you besiege a city for a long time, you shall not destroy its trees. (laughs) You care about the trees? (laughs) These people are trying to kill us. And we're saying, care about the trees. He seems to care a lot about his creation. Why? Oh, it makes sense because he created it. Now, some of you guys know that, that my wife, Kristen, is an artist. And, and I, I can remember one time when, when we were moved out of our home, we had to put some stuff into storage, and we were, we were putting her canvases into a storage unit. And to my shame, we put her canvases upright into the storage unit, and I leaned some furniture on top of those canvases. And it wasn't until we got things out of the storage unit that I realized that I've just now ruined it. 
and we made indentions into her canvases and paintings. And at that moment, what was I saying to Kristen? Our care for creation is not just about creation. It reflects how our heart is set towards our creator. How much do we care about what he has now created and loves? His work of art. We've got to see our care for the creation is reflective of our care for the creator. It's not pick one or the other. And so we've seen Eden, the, the, the laws that Israelites broke that led to the exile. And lastly, I want us to look at exaltation. If, if, if pre-mill Paul is right, and all of this is just going to burn anyways, God says care for the creation, and we're thinking, yeah, but does it really matter? Well, let me challenge that view that it's just all going to burn anyways. Like Romans 8.21 says that creation itself is groaning. <laughs> that creation itself is groaning. It will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so creation will be set free from its bondage, just as you and I will be set free from our bondage. Don't miss this. Just as, as you will be resurrected... God's world will be resurrected too. And so God's created world will be resurrected. And many times when we see that God talk about heaven, it's not talking about this ethereal, nebulous land that we're all going to be floating off away to as this world dies. It's, it's a remaking of this world. It's a resurrection of this world. It's, it's the final land that God has promised to you and I. That's the land that we're going to go to. And Isaiah 35 tells us, in that day, the deserts will bloom. That if, that's how good the creation's going to be. It's going to go back to the way it was, but it's even be even better. And so, <laughs> there'll be no wind in heaven, okay? <laughs> Absolutely no wind in heaven. So as good as Estes Park, Colorado is, heaven will be better. As good... <laughs> As the beaches are, heaven's going to be better. On the flip side, as bad as Houston is. I'm from Houston. It's just a concrete jungle out there. Heaven's going to be better, and he's going to remake Houston. And God will remake Dallas. And God will remake East Waco. He will remake all of his creation into be what it was intended to be. And don't miss this. The, the animals will be remade too. God's creation, his canvas will be restored. That which we've, we've ruined, he will restore it. In Isaiah eleven seven. 7, it says, the cow and the bear are going to graze together. And then it says that their kids are going to graze together. What an image. And then it says that the, the, the lions are going to eat straw. <laughs> Ugh. That the lions don't have to hunt anymore. But what about Revelation 21? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and there was no more. You might think, doesn't that mean that this earth is going away? No, the next verse shows that the city of heaven is coming down onto earth. It's going to remake this earth. Again, it's just, heaven is just like our bodies. Just as we get new bodies in heaven, we're going to get this earth remade in heaven. Jesus is going to resurrect it as well. 
And when we get those new bodies, we'll be able to walk through walls like Jesus does, but we'll still be able to eat fish. We'll still be able to care for this creation and, and, and live in this world. Heaven will be like a return to Eden, a return to God's original design. And even though we get new bodies, we're still told to take care of the one we have. And we need to take care of the world that we have. And so there you have it. From Eden to exile to exaltation, God clearly cares about his canvas, every brush stroke. And so now I say, so what? How do we now care for this creation? Well, let me, let me just give you a quote from a guy named Gus Speth. Gus Speth was, a, was the chairman of the Council on Environmental Quality under President Jimmy Carter. And, and he said, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. And I was wrong. The top environmental problems today are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation, and we scientists don't know how to do that. <laughs> this is the top aid to our president, that we don't know how to deal with this selfishness, greed, and apathy. I mean, do you, do you see what he's saying is? We, we just, the answer isn't we just need more information. We don't know what to do. He's saying the root issue is greed and apathy. And he's saying that I don't know what to do about it. But the good news is, is that Christians do know what to do about it. We as Christians know exactly how to speak to this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that we have a God who loves the earth so much that he tabernacled himself amongst it. He encased himself in our flesh in it. He made himself what we are to make us what he is. He took on flesh. He died and he was raised to save the least, the last, and the lost. And even though he saw our greed, even though he saw our apathy, he took the initiative. And he came and sought us out. And he came out for us even when we didn't care for him. Gus is saying that it's more than an inconvenient truth. We're messed up. We're just selfish. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came for mess-ups like us. And he lives and dies and reclaims sinners like you and I. And he came for selfish and greedy and apathetic people like you and I. But he doesn't just give you fire insurance. He then tasks you to care and have dominion, not domination, over his creation. And because of that, we, we don't need to pinch for every last penny. We can let ourselves Sabbath we can let the land Sabbath. We can even care enough about our animals to let them Sabbath. Because we've been given the ultimate Sabbath in Jesus. We have a greater rest that we're all looking forward to. And we don't need to suck every last ounce of this life out of this world because we're built for another world. And yet, because we're built for another world, God still tells us to care deeply about this world and fight to protect it because he cares deeply about this world. And so can Christians be environmentalists? How can we not? For God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only life. I pray that Christians would be leading the charge to care for Christ's creation, push into these realms, and love and care for his artwork. Let's pray.